0: Joydeep Roy Bhattacharya is an author from Jamshedpur, India. Bhattacharya studied philosophy and politics at Presidency College, Calcutta, and international relations and political philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. After publishing his first novel, The Gabriel Club, Bhattacharya began writing three novels aimed at addressing widespread misinformation about the Muslim world and introducing readers to a world that both differs from the Western world and is similar with regard to fundamental aspects of humanity. He also began writing three novels ag- addressing the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. Mia conducted this interview with Bhattacharya at the cemetery Montparnasse near the graves of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. We are very excited to welcome Joydeep Roy Bruy to the creative process.
1: From your background in philosophy, um, and you cover a lot of uh, these themes, their ideas. I'm wondering, do you start from a character and find your way to a theme? Or is it a theme and how, in some of your most recent books, how did they come about?
2: Like you, Mm -hmm. I'm working on a project. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, I decided that because there is so much misunderstanding of the Muslim world, and so much misinformation about the Muslim world that I needed as a writer to try to do something that one can do in terms of creative writing, in terms of fiction, that one cannot do in terms of journalism or in terms of polemic essays, which is to introduce the lay reader to a world that was significantly different from the Western world, but also significantly similar in terms of fundamental human qualities. So I decided to write three novels with a more or less peaceful aspect, focusing on um, components that make the Muslim culture culturally unique. And then three novels that dealt specifically with the last 14 experiences, uh, 14 years of experience of war. Um, yeah. So in terms of the set of three cultural novels, for the first one I wrote a novel based around a storyteller in Marrakesh. Uh, the title for that novel was The Desert of Love, because it grew on the Sufi theme of... Uh, love, which means the abnegation of the self,
3: right.
2: which means complete surrender.
1: It had another title as well.
2: Oh, uh, the storytelling title. Yes, <laughs> that that <laughs> yeah. was my American, you know, publishers. Publishers are very conservative when it comes to titles. Yeah. Um. I am working on a very large book now, which is book two in that trilogy, which is not. You know, they each unique novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is set in Iran, and it deals with painting and calligraphy.
3: Okay.
2: And the final novel, in that cultural set, will be set in Abbasi Baghdad uh, in the 9th century, and will deal with, uh, basically what you and I do, the world of books, because... So many institutions that are part of publishing in the West today started in Abasi Baghdad. Book readings, book cafes, paperbacks, um, libraries, patronage of writers by publishers. Um, so, those are the three novels that deal with cultural aspects and are set in different parts of the Muslim world. In terms of war and the last 14 years. I began with Antigone because I've always been enormously attracted. Her sisters, her sister-in-law and the impact 40 years of war in that country has had on a very rich, and yet, in terms of the impact of war and modernity, very fragile tribal culture. The final book Uh, The sequel to Antigone, book three in that set, is going to be entirely from the American point of view, what happens when uh, it's based partly on the play Ajax, uh, and it addresses the question of what happens when these very young men who have been sent into a foreign land to kill and be killed come back home and are expected to seamlessly merge back into a very, very different civilian culture. Mm. So that is my project. In terms of a political point of view, I am being very deliberately objective in terms of the war trilogy because I want to let the voices speak for themselves and therefore it's important for me to give voice to every kind of uh, expression in the political spectrum. So some of these voices will have opinions and ideas I do not believe with. But I let the reader decide on the basis of the story and on the basis of what they are being told by these voices, where he or she stands. Um, I believe we are in a period of perpetual war that it's completely unnecessary, but it is required for the economy of the West, because especially in the United States, but also I notice in France, the defense industry is incredibly powerful and also probably the only industry that is actually making an old fashioned capitalist profit.
1: Yes, but it's, it's funded as well, so it's. Would it be making a profit? You know what I mean? It's not. It,
2: it, 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 it gets obscene amounts of funding in America, at least, but it also makes obscene amounts of money. So, for instance, all of the combatants in Syria and Iraq today are using American weapons whether these weapons are captured whether these weapons were initially supplied to a set of rebels on the expectation that they would be the good guys but turned out to be the bad guys and so Mm -hmm. forth Um, it is a tragedy that is comparable to the years that led up to the first world war because leadership seems to be entirely lacking especially if you look at how the whole, whole refugee crisis is being handled by Europe Um, in terms of the cultural set of three novels my intention is much more to be an educator to basically expose your lay reader in Paris or I don't know Marseille Lyon you know Texas to aspects of Islamic culture that I can guarantee you that they have no idea about
1: Yes, it's.
2: And it is an enormously rich culture which served as the bridge between classical cultures in India, for instance, or Greece, and the Western Renaissance. I'm not Muslim, but I felt an obligation, a moral obligation, to educate myself and realize how little I knew about the world because, of course, like most are urban educated, literate, elite from the third world, my education was fundamentally Western. And at a rather late middle age, I am now discovering uh, the culture of the world I come from. It's been an absolute revelation because I personally had no idea it was so rich. And to that extent, you know, the last 15 years, have been enormously, enormously... uh, rewarding for me because it has entailed a lot of research, a lot of reading that I probably wouldn't have done under the circumstances because I was, you know, I did my graduate work in German philosophy and I think it happens to all of us. I think what is going on now is we are being forced. To recognize that this paradigmatic Western civilization that we are part of, that we have been indoctrinated with, has some ver- you know some fundamental flaws, and the most fundamental flaws is this automatic assumption that everything coming from the West always came from the West, had no other origins. Whereas it's almost you know it, it's almost the opposite. If you look at the three religions of the book. They all came from the fourth religion of the book, which no one knows much about, which was uh, uh, the Western religion, which became Zoroastrianism. But the concept of good and evil, the idea of a prophet, the idea of angels, even something as little as the Christmas tree.
1: It all was cannibalized and repackaged.
2: Absolute, absolutely. Um, and this is the kind of history that we are not made aware of because we are told a particular story.
3: Mm.
2: We are told a particular fiction. You know, there was Greece, there were the Dark Ages, there was the Renaissance, there was the Enlightenment, and here we are, the children of, well I guess at this point, post-modernity. Well, the Dark Ages in the West were actually not that dark because there were... There was intense interaction with the Islamic world, for instance. And for the Islamic world during that period, that was the, peri- the golden age.
1: Sure, and with science yep. and everything, yes, beyond that.
2: So. so once you start studying that history, which is almost an alternative history, you realise, oh my God, the 5,000 years of Chinese civilization—five 5,000 years. You know, paper, glass, gunpowder. And then you're asking yourself... Did the West invent anything?
1: No, but they're good at packaging it
2: as they're totally good at, you know, just kind of appropriating it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, The concept of zero came from India, you know, Aesop's Fables was originally the Panchatantra. Yeah. (laughs) The Iliad is supposed to be this canonical text, and you realize, well, hell, you know, it's. One book of, of, this, many, of, yes. of many, but also it's one book of, for instance, the 17 books of the Mahabharata. Mm. Um, and then you realize that there is more to read and learn than you probably have time in your lifetime. And it's like an elation, mm. but it's also like a complete stupefaction and anger that you were denied this because you had no idea. And mm. you know <laughs> you blame yourself because why didn't you want to find out? Because you were on a set trajectory, right? You, you, you go to an undergraduate college wherever, you pick up your education and then uh, you go get a job somewhere.
0: Hmm. I'm Allison Matesic, an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago. Last year at the University, I took a class called Self-Culture and Society, which focused on understanding the basis of cultural, historical, and social problems, as well as differences and similarities among societies across the world. De Beauvoir's novel, The Second Sex, was among the many insightful, eye-opening texts we read, and I found it particularly fitting that Bhattacharya's interview was conducted outside her grave, given both De Beauvoir and Bhattacharya's dedication to shedding light on the experience of a particular group in society and how interaction with society, as well as background, shapes humans' perspective of the world. In the interview, Bhattacharya describes how he aims to introduce readers to a world that differs from the Western world and to expose truths about the Muslim world that are often hidden under a veil of misinformation. In the Self-Culture Society course I took, We read an article about how Western feminists tend to portray themselves as the norm, thereby othering women in other countries, and making false judgments about those different from themselves. The article went on to discuss how for some Western women, the notion of women wearing headdresses seems constricting and anti-feminist, yet many women who actually wear headdresses describe it as liberating and pro-feminist. Being in this class made me realize how predisposed to a particular way of thinking I was, simply by virtue of the environment and place in which I was raised. Through reading books written by authors around the globe, I and others can enter a world shaped by people with entirely different perspectives and understand elements of the world to which we are blind. Through novels, we can all understand each other a bit better and make a world that is seemingly huge a little bit smaller, realizing that differences among cultures add color to the world and understanding and appreciating both differences across cultures as well as the commonality of the human condition that unifies us all. So, it is interesting, as
1: you said, I'm fascinated with the objectivity that you bring to your novels, uh, um, allowing the voices to speak, and, you know, from, you said, your training, and uh, and Germany, and this, and I know you addressed it a little, and yet you you have not yet, I don't know if it's in the future, will write a book about India, or, or no?
2: Well, it's strange. My first novel was set in, in Hungary because I spent 1989 uh, in each of the countries while the revolutions were taking place, the Velvet Revolutions. And then I wanted to write a short novel set in Germany uh, to sort of say goodbye to my academic work on Germany. It was a philosophical novel set in wartime and it became this massive project. What was supposed to be a short novel consumed seven, seven years of my life. and then. I realized that I posed a marketing problem to a Western publisher, which is always the question that comes up with me. Which is, I am Indian, I live in America, I write in English, I was writing at that time about Europe, uh, my background is in German philosophy, you know, and all, what they wanted was the Indian novel. What mm. my mother wants is the Indian novel. Um, after this project is finished the three plus three project is how I what mm-hmm. I call it I would actually like to surrender and write a novel in India but write a novel set in an India that most people don't know in a period most people don't know so that's very very rich and I don't know why I have this obligation to address the Muslim uh, you know the Muslim culture today at a Point where it's been vilified, probably because I did a lot of work on Germany in the period that the Jews were be, being vilified sure. in the 1920s and 30s, and I think what is happening now is a sort of mirror image of what was done to the Jews. Mm. Um, I want to set it in a small city called Lucknow, mm-hmm. which had and continues to have, although it declined today a very rich literary culture. So, for instance, if you go to Lucknow, which is in the northeast, and you see a gardener walking past, and you ask him what he does, and he says, well, I'm a gardener, but I'm also a poet. Mm. Or you go to a car repair shop and you ask him what he does, and he says, well, you know, I'm uh, I'm, I'm a car mechanic, but actually I'm a poet. Or you get off the train and there's, you know, the ticket collector and you say, you know, well, what do you do? It's obvious what he does, but he said, well, you know, I'm collecting tickets for a living, but I have to tell you I'm a poet, you know, and and he recites poetry. It's an astonishing culture and it's it's sad because modernity does not support that. This was a culture based on patronage. Mm -hmm. You had... Patrons who were very rich and very wealthy, but also appreciated poetry enough for every house to be a kind of mini foundation. And mm-hmm. you were really privileged if you had a bona fide, genuine poet or writer in the family. Mm-hmm. To me, that is unique. I've never come a, across a situation like this. Well, a whole bloody city, mm-hmm. you know, they do not feel that they are complete unless they have written something.
1: It's you know it is the reverse now. I think people are forgetting how to read, and Absolutely. and now everyone is a pop star in the making or something. You know,
2: very good analogy.
1: But um, I don't know if it's an analogy. It's just a sad observation, and it it's heartening. I I would like to to visit this place. And and how does that, when you are, in a city of poets, which just seems like an anachronism. Um, how does that change the daily interactions? Is there a heightened aesthetic? Do you know what I mean? He's, you
2: Mia, right? Mia, yeah. yes. Mia, I'm so glad we've just met in the morning. Let me read you the poet poem I wrote at 12 o'clock so, last night okay. after you know, we had dinner and I came back home and you know I was depressed. But then suddenly, <laughs> you know, I, I thought, oh my God, these words are coming to me and I have to read it to Mia tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And Nia sa- uh, listens to my poem, then she says, Guess what you did? Let me read you what I wrote. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's, it's Actually, there's a very funny aspect to it, because yeah. if you go to the city today, it was very, very beautiful ar- architecturally, mm. but like a lot of these places, today it's very decrepit. It's, right. it's falling to pieces, because you know, who has time for that kind of thing today? I mean, in India, India wants to be the next neoliberal economy, mm. right? Sure. So for me, it is bittersweet, and once again, I have. I'm a sucker for the voiceless. So this very Borgesian city exists mm. in a place out of time, Go wow. out of its time. Mm. And what's even more interesting is the language mm-hmm. Urdu is rhymed
1: and complex. Ah yes.
2: Oh wow. So you you see. I see. Yeah.
1: That's, yeah, it's strange. It's strange how some languages are more adapted to poetry. Yeah, and, um, like
2: Persian. But because they internalize it at a very early age, it comes naturally to them. Right. And the more refined your language is, this is like Chinese court language, mm-hmm, sure. the more you, it's, it's sort of like a tacit expression of class mm-hmm. and your caste, you know, the fact that you are sophisticated, you are literate. Mm-hmm. Uh, completely different value system.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's refreshing. I mean, I can, uh, I can, imagine, I can imagine the, the Lucknow stockbrokers <laughs> <laughs> or <the laughs> I,
2: don't, I don't even know if they have <laughs> stockbrokers, but I, I bet if they have stockbrokers, you know, they're quoting the stocks and rhyme couplets.
1: <laughs> 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 it happens very slowly, <laughs> the <laughs> exchanges. <laughs> 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 but that's a, that's a funny uh, satire to think of. Uh, well, it's funny because I think it's funny i I wrote a well i don 't know if I wrote I should tell a story, maybe there's a story like this, but I thought, you know money, really it is an artwork. it is an artwork it 's a drawing on a piece of paper, and somehow we are corrupt we 've corrupted it to mean exchange. but you know you can think of what is the origins of money, these medals, these things there are artworks in fact, Michelangelo started doing little medals and things like that, and uh it, it becomes something, it's commerce, but uh, if you take it back to what it is, it's a, it's a printed artwork, and sometimes it has bad poetry on it, or bad slogans, <laughs> but um, it has another possibility. It's, it's funny. Uh,
2: you know, people always say he was gay, but he had this very close friend, and I don't know if he had, it was an entirely platonic relationship, but she mm-hmm. was a writer, you probably... Yes. You probably know who I'm talking about. Victoria Colonna?
1: I I don't know well, but I know...
2: Okay, Google Michelangelo's sketch, pencil sketch of Victoria Colonna. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: It'll come up, and you look at this thing, and the woman is alive. I mean, the fact that someone can pull that off with -hmm. a pencil and a piece of paper. Oh, he's amazing, yes. But he sketched her, or whatever, how he engraved her on a coin that he made for her. And he gave her a copy of that, and he kept a copy of that.
1: Oh, that's interesting, yes. Well, he might have been physically, I don't know how we're just surmising, but he might have been physically one way, but it doesn't, you know, there's a sp- there are spiritual friendships or loves. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that I'm not prescriptive about that. I think that hmm, I don't like to define people that way. But he's a great artist, and that's what's interesting. In fact, in, uh, because I, I, stu- I studied a little in Florence, and in private ateliers, but I learned some of those techniques, and um, there's an amazing painting by, one. you know, it is an amazing collection in Renaissance, and we're going off subject, but there is, um, in the Uffizi, in the, mun- in the Municipal Gallery, there is just this little portrait, not little, but a Bronzino portrait, and you know he did the Medici, and they're all very powerful. Always his portraits, but it is a portrait of his friend, a poet, Laura Batte- Batteferi. and uh, it is a fantastic. You pro- maybe have seen it. She is in profile, and she has a, quite a fierce nose, like almost like a crow. And her her hands are in a book, and she's just—it's just arresting to look at. And then of course there's Botticelli's, the and there's so many decorative beautiful things there but that when I saw that and it's not the famous painting you know it's not what he's known for but I, I again it was like a personal friendship the respect and um you know for a, a portrait of an author it was it's very powerful I think if you ever get a chance to to
3: go there's
2: a Persian miniature pa- painter who lived in the 13th century in mm-hmm. Herat yes which is in Western Afghanistan by mm. the Iranian border, but used to be part of you know extended Iranian civilization. He's very good, I think I said his name Bizar, and he mm-hmm. has this uh, painting uh, of a friend, a woman, a poet, just at the point in time that she has read a poem that has affected her and she's in the midst of swooning mm. as a result of the impact of the language. sure. So that's sort of the opposite extreme. That this language can do this to you.
1: It does. Yes, it's nice. W- it's nice when you even when you work on something so much. You, you're going towards this final image or final thing, and and when you can touch yourself. Sometimes you th- I don't. You know, I do get emotional. Sometimes uh, certain passages through writing are just. You know, catch you. Such you as. I don't know. I'm wondering. Does oh, it you're it asking me. Yes.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> of your own work or others, there's some that you just get you.
2: Um, there's a very small book, I think it's 80 pages, by a French novelist and writer called Julien Grac. Oh, okay. And in English, uh, the translation is, uh, King Cofetua, mm-hmm. and I think the f- French translation is Le Roi, uh, Le Roi, Le Roi, Le Roi. uh, Cofetua, and, uh, Yeah, I would say that is a book where there are many passages where I, you know, first I'm moved and then I feel jealous and then I realize it's just so perfect Mm. and, you know, 80 pages of perfection. Mm. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think for me, poetry does that more because I think it's much more immediate and it, it, it is much more compact a philosopher, to read language that is able to express many levels of meaning in a very compact uh, space is astonishing because it is absolutely layered. Uh, both Western poetry and Eastern poetry, uh, you know every time I read a, a Hafez poem, it's like a different poem. It's a, especially important to me as a writer of prose because I with very few exceptions, find American fiction unreadable because it's just so verbose. They mm. do not know the, the concept of succinctness, mm. of uh, being able to express something in a pearl mm. rather than
1: it's rare. F- no, they are, they're a great short story writer. I, I, I luckily, I've had to, a chance to, to, to read some of them or interview some of them, and, but it's true. It tends towards the great American novel. Is a, some, you think you have to weight and um, I think the poetic impulse is less strong. It's not strong
2: there. Uh, but there are very good American poets, but in yes. terms of the prose writers, I mean, people go mm. on and on about David Foster Wallace. I find them unreadable. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's,
1: it's I think the best, uh, for me, the brief interviews with hideous men was... See, everyone works, tells yeah. me
2: to read that. <laughs> like if this guy was, you know, had the gall to publish some you know, rubbish, like whatever.
1: Infinite Jest. Yes. It's a bit long. I, I agree. This there is, there yeah.
2: are perfect American novels. I think Blood Meridian, you ah, can't yes. get better like that. In it, it's it, poetic, it, it, yeah. It just goes to the heart of the American experience. I mean, this mm-hmm. is what America is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah
1: no it it is it is tend to be quite long and and you know, so the people i've been interviewing i mean i I follow my own I have to have a certain sympathy or a certain um understanding with what I'm interviewing, so I have been even putting off some of these other longer writers not that i ha- and I've read their books, but i you know i so I have had a lot of short story writers or people who've worked in both mediums and because it's has that po- even if it's not poetry, it has a poetic impulse. And um, I, I think it is stronger in, in other cultures. Um, I, I don't know why. Maybe more musical, the language. I'm not sure why. I have so much to learn, you know. Uh, and writing is so... Painting is just something I do, you know, like with my hands. But if I, I write or if I read, it's just my hand and eye and heart. and Yes, it's, it's more, it involves more of me. I don't know if you find that with the uh, you know other mediums that just touch you more. Engage all of you.
2: Yeah, I think poetry engages all of me, mm-hmm. but that's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, music certainly engages all of you.
1: Even if you can't put the word on it, it does something. Yeah, yes.
2: Yeah. Especially if I can't put a word on it. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, it's true. Music. And then the other thing is: Did you have any musical background, or have you?
2: I, I grew up listening to Indian classical music, because my mother had formal training in Indian classical music, and then uh, my former wife w- is an orchestral conductor, so that's Western classical music, so I had a lot of that, and now I listen to death metal stop
1: it stop it no
2: it's just very good it's very sophisticated <laughs> very clean very visceral and especially when I have to write you know very tender stop love it. civics you know just uh, put it on let it blast my cats run away to as far as, away as they can no I usually listen to it on headphones because for some reason they don't like it as much as Bach stop it <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, no, I know
1: that. But what's your f- what is the music? Do you, li- do you write all, all, with music? All,
2: all kinds of music. Yes. I was listening to Chinese people music three huh. weeks ago by this incredible player who's from Xinjiang. And uh, National Public Radio had a broadcast series that they then put into a collection of 12 compactors of music from Central Asia. And there were so many elements that were similar to Indian music, but not exactly. And Mm. it's that, you know, just just being something a little off is Mm. fascinating, fascinating. And It's an expression of the culture because there is just so much held back and it's the music of the silences. Because, you know, you pluck the string, it resonates, and there is a silence. It's not like Western music. You keep needing to fill up. Of course, Western music has silences. But this, you could really dwell on the strings. You know, the pluck, string, the resonance, the way she plucked it. Mm. And the sophistication there didn't happen overnight. I mean, it's years of very, very cultivated whole music making. Mm. Centuries.
1: Yes, it's like you think, and I know you, you're you writing about that too, is um, like calligraphy. You think, oh that is a stroke. But to get that, that knowledge, that experience, yes. Um, so what what drew, drew you to write about that? I think you're, you're writing about that in one of your cycles of you said calligraphy. Calligraphy poetry,
2: okay. poetry, yes. Well, I went offline two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Not entirely, because I have to check my email once a week. But I write letters. And I try to make them calligraphic. It's it's very meditative for me. Mm -hmm. And I realize that each culture that has calligraphy as part of its cultural component, as part of its soul... Actually has a different kind of instrument for the calligraphy, so the Japanese use a particular kind of brush yes um, and a particular kind of wood and a particular kind of cut, and they have different widths of nibs, which is quite different from the Chinese the Persians of course they use reeds mm. but there are today Japanese calligraphers who are working in the Persian style, mm. but using the brush rather than the reed.
1: Okay. Yes.
2: Um. It's 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 you know it's 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 not painting and it's mm. not writing, mm. but. Once again, I mean, for me, I suppose the, the 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 beauty is in both the abstraction and the compaction,
3: mm-hmm.
2: because because of the prescription against the graven image, especially in Islam, mm-hmm. calligraphy there was very sophisticated. There, like you know, one hundred and seventeen recognized formal types, mm-hmm. you know, like letter types. Mm-hmm. And you cannot mistake the Kufic script, for instance, with the Tulut script. And they're all so beautiful. And they're all so abstract. And they're not limited to paper. They do it on tiles, you know, mm. ceramic tiles. Yes. Um, I just find it very beautiful.
1: It, it's fun. I mean, I'm not sure. I think with um, the if introduced... I one thing,
2: sorry, I'm interrupting. Go, no, no, no. One thing I would like you to do is... With your paintings of the portraits of the writers, Mm -hmm. I think you should actually write the names in calligraphy.
1: Yes that's a good that's a good idea. You know, just yeah, yes.
2: maybe at the bottom left hand portion or whatever.
1: Or even have the uh, that's something I haven't approached the writers about or even have them do
2: Brilliant. This. Even better.
1: I I wanted I was waiting and I thought oh god they gone on well, just you know they might not want to but at the end of the project I think I can incorporate. I've we we have lost well in the west anyway, we have lost a certain sensitivity towards
3: of Now
2: everyone does email. You know? Yeah. Come on, it's we not, don't know what that means. It's now. not just the the art of the write the the you know the physical art of the writing, but it's also the physical art of composition, the letter. Yes. Um. There is an aesthetic satisfaction to handwriting a letter, putting it in a beautiful envelope, sealing the envelope with wax. Mm-hmm writing the name with a calligraphic flourish, putting it in the mailbox and having the letter returned to you three days later with a note saying, please come to the post office because what is this thing on the back of the letter and there's some kind of poisonous material. (laughs) <laughs> I've had that happen to me. Really?
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Is,
2: is, is, is there an anthrax component to this?
1: <laughs> My mother once had some crazy person in love with her and he said it's a fake bomb threat. <laughs> I was suddenly at a vacated post office.
2: No, today really a letter, a simple letter has become a work of art because no one does it.
1: Yes, it, I tr- I try to, but it, it's hard. But it, it's funny because it's just like musical interpretation. You know, you can have a squad banal um, a lyric, like I was listening to Sam Cooke, You Send Me, or something. But, you know, he makes that sound so emotional. And in the same, I imagine, with calligraphy, if you can still appreciate it, has that possibility of giving the dimensions.
2: Absolutely.
1: So your background is philosophy, and you studied politics, and you have this you know, it didn't define you from the beginning. I was curious about that, you know, how you with the transition. Um, and so I feel that way too. You don't feel you're defined by this. It's a tool, it's another way. So how did that transition happen, anyway?
2: I've never felt the need to define myself, you know. Uh, when you grow up in India, it's such a complex, cosmopolitan society. I mean, for one thing, as a child, you're just expected to master, it just comes naturally to you, four or five languages. Right. Because, you know, you know English, you know, probably know another Western foreign language, you at least speak three Indian languages. So, and I think it does something to your mentality, mm-hmm. if you have an open mind. Which, unfortunately, most Indians, like most contemporary Chinese, are very driven, materialistically, so, you know, you're the automatic assumption is that you're going to become a doctor or a lawyer yeah. or a hedge fund manager.
1: Well, it was a different track for you. It was imagined for you. What was the imagined track?
2: The imagined track was always I was going to follow in my family's footsteps and be a scientist. Yes. But I was present and I'd make a very bad scientist. And now I get to sit next to and listen to you talk, which is fantastic.
1: Okay.
0: Well, it's it has been a pleasure talking. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Alison Matesic. Digital media coordinator is Yu-young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolus and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.